Welcome to The Dr. Medic, everyone, where I will do my best to bridge the gap between research and practice and the world of helicopter EMS and all of paramedicine. Catch the full effect of these podcasts with all the visuals over on YouTube, but for now, let's get started. This pilot is sitting in a helicopter at the hospital landing pad, trying to verify the weather before returning himself and two flight nurses back to their home base in Brownsville, Tennessee. He makes the fateful decision to try and beat the storm, but ends up crashing with the base almost in sight. This episode is going to talk about a terrible situation called get there the importance of risk assessment, as well as some high-tech in-flight weather reports that helicopter pilots receive. All of this and more on this episode of The Dr. Medic. This accident took place in Brownsville, Tennessee, which is about an hour drive northeast of Memphis, Tennessee. The flight service at the time was owned by a 501c3 nonprofit called Memphis Medical Center Air Ambulance Service and operated under the name of Hospital Wing. However, in late 2021, Hospital Wing and its assets were purchased by Medtrans, which is a part of the global medical response family of companies. This journey starts at 0426 hours on the morning of March 25th, 2010, when the medical crew received a call to transport a patient from the city of Parsons to Jackson-Madison County General Hospital Heliport in Jackson, Tennessee. They departed their home base, which as identified on some of the maps we'll look at is 99TN, in a beautiful A-Star 350B3. This A-Star was manufactured just two years earlier in 2008. It only had a total of 248 hours on the airframe and had an awesome Turbomeca Aerial 2B1 engine with 747 horsepower. This aircraft had all the updated interior lighting to be NVG compliant and had pretty much all of the safety bells and whistles such as an enhanced ground proximity warning system, terrain awareness warning systems, a dual screen vehicle and engine multifunction display otherwise known as a VEMD, a digital electronic control unit, a full multifunction display that was set to receive serious XM satellite weather updates, and it even had an autopilot. And the pilot in this accident was a 58-year-old male who held a commercial pilot's license for single and multi-engine land airplane, helicopter, and instrument ratings for both fixed and rotor wing. He held a class two medical certificate with the only limitations being that he had to wear corrective lenses. He had a total of 4,193 flight hours with 919 in this type of aircraft. Many of the flight crew setups in the United States are comprised of a pilot, a flight paramedic, and a flight nurse. However, there are certain states out there that can do things a bit differently where maybe there is also a physician on board or maybe a respiratory therapist, or as is the case here with Hospital Wing, there were two flight nurses and there was no flight paramedics on the flight. So the crew departs their home base at 0426 hours in the morning on a Part 91 positioning flight to Parsons, Tennessee to pick up their patient and they arrive on that scene at 0450. 
It takes the medical crew about 25 minutes to assess, treat, and package up their patient, and they depart Parsons at 0517 en route for Jackson-Madison County General Hospital, which will show up on the maps we'll see as TN05. They arrive at Jackson-Madison at 0534, and the two flight nurses take the patient inside while the pilot stays with the helicopter to prepare for the return trip to their home base. By this time, the next day's oncoming pilot had already arrived at the base to prepare for his day shift when he received a phone call from the accident pilot regarding a weather check. Oftentimes, calling another pilot between bases can be a useful way for many HEMS pilots to get an accurate picture of what the weather is in another location. But doing so will never be able to accurately portray the weather between the two bases, but instead, only at the two bases. The accident pilot asks the oncoming pilot what the weather is like at the home base and he tells them that it seems like it's clear at the moment, but checks the weather on the base computer and notes that there is a big thunderstorm headed their way from Memphis. The oncoming pilot gets a sense that the accident pilot seems like he is in a hurry and suggests that he leave the helicopter at the hospital and wait out the storm, but the accident pilot very quickly responds that the lower pad is already occupied, insinuating that he does not want to leave the helicopter on the elevated hospital pad that he's currently sitting on. The accident pilot then tells the oncoming pilot that he believes you know, he has about 18 minutes to quote, beat the storm and make it back to base and then ask the oncoming pilot to actually call the two flight nurses who are still inside wrapping up their patient transfer and advise them that he is going to leave them at the hospital and fly back to the base now so he can beat the storm and that a private vehicle will come back and pick them up at a later time. The oncoming pilot agrees, but when he calls the first flight nurse, he realizes that her cell phone was left behind at the base as he can sit there and hear it ringing in front of him. So he hangs up and when he calls the second nurse, she states that they've already made it back to the helicopter and they were on their way back and would be at the base in just seven minutes. The oncoming pilot was clearly concerned and actually was able to call that second flight nurse back just a few minutes later while they were en route back to the base and give a final weather update. The oncoming pilot thought that the weather looked better by the base and advised the nurse that she had the weather beat. The nurse then told him that they would be at the base in just 30 seconds. As soon as the pilot hung up with the nurse though, he noticed that the weather immediately picked up with a very loud clap of thunder and he saw lightning that actually made him jump. He then tried to call the nurse back, who did not answer. He then called MedCom, which was their dispatch and flight followers, to advise them of the situation and also ran up the hill by their base to where an ambulance was located next door. The helicopter never did make it back, with the wreckage being found just two and a half miles from their base in a large open wheat field. Initial ground scars showed that the helicopter impacted the ground with the aircraft near nose level with a 33 degree left bank attitude. The main wreckage, consisting of the cabin and cockpit areas, came to rest about 112 feet south of the initial ground scars and was mostly destroyed by a post-impact fire. Sadly, all three crew members of this flight were killed. So what went wrong here? You have a company which, by all accounts from my investigation, showed that they were heavily invested in the safety of their crew members. They invested millions of dollars into safety equipment, which at the time, most of it was not even required by the FAA, and some of it's still not required today. 
Well, as with most accidents, and even with many safety layers of that Swiss cheese model in place, things can still slip through the cracks. Following this accident, there was a lengthy investigation that looked at just about every single possibility you could imagine. Examination of the wreckage revealed no evidence of any pre-impact failures or malfunctions of the engine, the drivetrain, main rotor, tail rotor, or structure of the helicopter. Additionally, there was no indication of an in-flight fire. Remember the oncoming pilot mentioned the loud thunderbang and subsequent lightning that made him jump? Well, investigators explored this option in great detail. They were able to speak with several local eyewitnesses who confirmed that there was a loud bang of thunder and what seemed like a very close lightning strike right around the time of the crash. But a detailed examination of the main rotor blade bonding braids did not reveal damage consistent with a lightning strike. Also, the engine showed evidence of power at impact with the ground, and examination of visible internal bearings showed no evidence of damage associated with a lightning strike either. There was actually also a wheeled above-ground irrigation system, which is what you see from the air that makes those crazy crop circles about 600 feet in length and about a quarter mile east of the accident site, which was also examined for evidence of lightning strikes with none being found. And finally, a report of cloud to ground lightning strikes from the National Lightning Detection Network indicated that within a 15 mile radius of the accident site between 0400 and 0605, there was one strike that occurred at 0602 and eight seconds. An additional report was obtained from the Weatherbug Total Lightning Network that was measured from 0545 to 0615, and they detected six cloud-to-ground strikes and 12 intercloud strikes. However, none of them occurred within 90 seconds of this accident. All of this data all but ruled out the possibility of a lightning strike. This helicopter was equipped with an enhanced ground proximity warning system, which basically advises the pilot of their proximity to the ground, including obstacles like towers and tall buildings. This system on this aircraft did contain an internal memory, but due to the post-impact fire, no data could be recovered from this system. There was also the digital ECU, and it did not have any usable data either due to thermal and heat damage. The dual screen vehicle engine malfunction display, otherwise known as the VEMD, also can record faults or errors like with the engine and other electronical systems, and the data was good on this system, but no faults or errors were even recorded. The last piece of equipment to be analyzed, though, was the multifunction display, otherwise known as the MFD. The MFD on this aircraft was configured to receive satellite broadcast XM satellite weather information, which includes, among other products, next generation radar Doppler, otherwise known as NEXRAD, weather radar data, and lightning strike data, and it actually timestamps a list of all weather reports that it receives. But even though this unit also sustained serious thermal damage, Data itself was not actually stored on the device, but were stored on XM servers, and this was available to all the investigators. Well, how does this unit work and what does it do anyway? Well, among many other things that it does, one of the things it does is it shows a weather radar picture on the screen for the pilot to look at and assess the weather. Now, this is not the same as an actual weather radar. There are helicopters out there such as the EC-135 and H-145 and other big helicopters who actually have their own weather radar unit in the nose of the aircraft that shows a true real-time picture of the weather in front of the aircraft just as big airliners would have. 
But most of the smaller aircraft, such as Bell 206s and 407s and A-Star 350s, do not have this. Now, aftermarket weather radar actually can be installed on some of these aircraft, but that would be added as an external installation, and just a lot of them don't have it. So for those helicopters without their own weather radar capabilities, many of them still use XM satellite weather to show the weather updates to the pilots. Now, the service provider for XM actually collects the NEXRAD data from multiple radar antennas from all over the United States and then compiles all of that data into a single image, otherwise known as a mosaic. This mosaic is the red, yellow, and green picture that can be seen on the MFD and is actually sent to anyone who is an XM subscriber at roughly five minute intervals. So when a pilot looks at the weather on their screen, they should be able to know that what they see on the screen is up to five minutes old. However, there is also a delay, otherwise known as latency, for the actual service provider to be collecting all that radar data from around the country in the first place prior to even sending the data to the MFD for the pilots to see. This latency on the provider end could be up to 15 minutes in length. You add that to the five minute delay of sending the mosaic to the MFD and you conclude that any mosaic that a pilot actually sees on the screen is a minimum of five minutes old, but could be up to 20 minutes old. Investigators fully recreated the events of the day of the crash and determined that only one mosaic was uploaded to the MFD during the accident flight and that was at 0556. Remember that the accident took place precisely at 0600 plus or minus 30 seconds. At 0556, the weather mosaic showed that green radar, or rain, had just crossed over their base with moderate rain in yellow being seven miles southwest and moving northeast towards the base. So, the front of this storm was just under seven miles away, four minutes before the crash, but the storm is also showing to be moving at a rate of 61 knots ground speed, and this means that the base would have begun to have been covered by a thunderstorm just as the helicopter was getting within two miles of the base. In a post-accident interview, the oncoming pilot stated that he believed that the XM weather depictions on the MFD were only delayed by 30 to 60 seconds and not up to 15 or 20 minutes. So why did this helicopter crash? Well, it crashed because the pilot thought that he had 18 minutes to beat the storm when he really only had less than half of that. The helicopter then got caught in the massive turbulence and terrible wind shear that can exist in the front of a fast-moving thunderstorm and subsequently was unable to control the helicopter, eventually flying it directly into the ground. But why did he make this decision in the first place? In post-accident interviews, the other flight nurses, the other pilots, and even his wife all stated that he was very weather conscious and would never put the helicopter or his crew at risk and that it is always better to just wait it out or turn down a flight if they needed to. But this pilot was working the night shift stretch of his shifts at this base, and EMS pilots typically rotate their schedules where they work long stretches of night shifts, then maybe a week off, then long stretches of day shifts, and they repeat that. It depends on the expectations at each employer, but when the pilots work at night, some of them will routinely nap overnight when they are not on a call, and some prefer to stay up the whole time. The accident pilot was definitely known to sleep during the day and then stay up all night for work. On this day, he was all the way at the end of his 12-hour shift, and he had also flown previous missions that day. 
And also, as I mentioned in a previous video, get their itis could have played a role here. Yes, I know that that name seems silly, but get their itis is actually a real thing, and it's even cited in the FAA's risk management handbook as personal or external pressure that clouds the vision and impairs judgment by causing a fixation on the original goal or destination combined with a total disregard for alternative courses of action. In a 2001 paper by Orosano, this type of error is called a planned continuation error, and they concluded multiple times that get itis is far more likely to occur at the end of a flight and also towards the end of a shift. These EMS pilots are also required to perform what's called a risk assessment for all of their flights. This is also a requirement of CAMES accreditation for helicopter EMS. Now, I wasn't able to tell if Hospital Wing was actually CAMES accredited back in 2010, but even if they were not, they still performed a risk assessment on all of their flights. These risk assessments are important tools in the safety of all EMS flights as they help to notify pilots of increased risks that they may not normally pay attention to. They also usually would say with their risk assessment, otherwise known as just RA, is when lifting for every single leg of every single flight. The RA is just one more added slice of the Swiss cheese to help cue in the pilot and the dispatchers and even the medical crew that could be listening that this flight could be at higher risk for an accident than some other flight. Now, only partial transcripts were available for this accident, which did not include the full conversation that the pilot had with Medcom prior to taking this leg of the flight. But an RA form was filled out at the beginning of the pilot's shift that only showed an RA of three, which is very low and is a normal RA for most flights. In short, the higher the number on the RA, the higher the risk for an accident. These RAs are not universal and can be different across flight services. And in this case, Hospital Wing showed that an RA over 14 was already an automatic no-go on a flight. Now this doesn't mean that the RA has to be above 14 to turn down the flight. It just means that if it is over 14, that they will turn down the flight. Hospital Wing, like many other flight services, utilize the motto of three to go and one to stay, meaning it only takes one crew member, including the med crew, to call out a safety concern and turn down the flight without any risk of retaliation. On the date of this accident, the RA was already at a three, but once you add in the precipitation, as well as the decreased weather minimums that the pilot was about to fly into, the RA then skyrockets way above the 14, which would have been just one more indicator that the pilot should not have taken that flight. In the end, investigators found the probable cause of this accident to be the pilot's decision to attempt the flight into approaching adverse weather, resulting in an encounter with a thunderstorm with localized instrument meteorological conditions, heavy rain, and severe turbulence that led to a loss of control. Following this accident, Hospital Wing actually spent big bucks and purchased an A-Star 350 FAA-approved flight simulator with each pilot needing to complete eight hours of IMC training per year. Today, under the new ownership of Medtrans and GMR, Hospital Wing now has NVGs for all three crew members where during this accident flight, only the pilot had night vision. Likewise, there is also a resource that some flight services have, such as those with air methods and Medtrans, where pilots can contact a dispatch center where other pilots are staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week in order to provide a sort of virtual co-pilot to assist pilots when making critical decisions such as the one the accident pilot made in this accident.
This pilot had a great safety history, but it seems as though he felt some type of internal pressure to hurry up and get back to the base even when all signs were pointing towards not lifting off. He thought he had more time to beat the storm, but it is possible that he, like the oncoming pilot, believed that the XM weather was more up to date than it was. He knew the risk was high, and he even suggested to leave the nurses back at the hospital and fly back alone. He disregarded the suggestion by the oncoming pilot. He was probably tired as he was at the end of his shift and had been busy flying other missions that day. All of these things add up to a high likelihood of get there itis decision fatigue, and a planned continuation error. Today, many of these types of accidents are prevented by the added resources of a centralized comm center with on-duty pilots to discuss weather and also the addition of actual weather radar on some of the bigger helicopters. But even with these added safeguards, pilots are still prone to making these types of decisions. Crew resource management and a just culture can play a big role in mitigating these types of risks, even with all of the added technology and resources. The loss of life in this accident is absolutely tragic, but just like many other accidents, the knowledge gained from this accident has gone on to prevent similar accidents from happening. I hope we can all learn from these mistakes and apply it to our practice out in the field, whether you're on an aircraft or on an ambulance or a fire truck or whatever, it doesn't matter. Either way, as always, Thanks again for watching. Please smash that subscribe button because it's really the only thing that's able to keep this channel going. Please stay safe, take care of each other, and I do hope that each and every one of you has a beautiful rest of your day.